All right, spiritual jurisprudence lesson six. We've covered for five lessons now the nature of the law, the laws of God, the New Testament laws, the Old Testament laws. Some of the things we've debunked is that massive heresy and at best gross misunderstanding that we're delivered from law. That is so often taught, but as we've proven over and over and over again, uh, you're not delivered from laws of the Bible. You still can't murder. You still can't commit prostitution. You still can't even lie. If you lie in court, you go to jail for lying to the judge. It's called perjury. There are these things you can't do that are in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19, which is a chapter worth worth studying, is perhaps the most legalistic chapter in the entire Bible, specifically the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and Leviticus is there in there. And then the the book of Leviticus is all about law. It's the most legalistic book of the law. And Leviticus 19 is the cream of the crop. It's the pinnacle. 37 verses, I believe, 32 or so commandments, and about 30 of them are in the New Testament. So tell me how we're so delivered, which we've answered over and over again. And so we're looking at this nature of the law so we can understand how the law works, how it applies to us. The, again, as a brief review, the reason we want to have a working knowledge, and not just, I don't even want us to settle for a working knowledge, a, a skilled knowledge of the laws of God, is because the spirit of Antichrist, which is already working in the earth today, is the spirit of lawlessness. And if the spirit and the flavor of the Antichrist is an attitude that says, you can't tell me what to do, and oh, I'm delivered from all that, then I don't want to be anything like that. I would rather be over here very close to the law of God, writing it upon the tables of my heart, than over here with the jackhammer trying to chisel it off the Ten Commandments. By the way, nine of the Ten Commandments are taught in the New Testament. The only one that's not is remember the Sabbath to keep it holy because Paul uh, declared that one man keeps every day holy another esteems one more than the others that's about the end of the line on the Sabbath whether it's a Saturday or a Sunday uh, Paul's pretty clear on it so this brings us to lesson six which is what the law when we refer to the Torah the Old Testament the mitzvah the 613 commandments of the Old Testament what that can and cannot do today for us Now, again, to remind you, there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament, 1,050 in the New Testament. When you distill the repetitious laws of the New Testament down, you're still 800 laws in the New Testament, which is 30% more than the Old Testament. So we have more stuff we're accountable for because we're supposed to be more mature this side of the cross, not more loose. When you grow up, they apply more laws to you. Have you noticed that when you get promoted on your job or promoted in life, you become responsible for more and for more? And for more, let's say you're a police officer. When you're a police officer, you've proven that you can stay out of jail as a young person. So then you become a police officer and you learn about all the laws that you have to enforce, laws you never even knew existed in which you can take it and not take it for. And then one day you become a police chief and you step up on that platform and now there's a whole other set of laws that you're responsible for as the chief of the police who enforce the law. And then if you become the mayor or the governor, Now you're responsible for a lot more information. Uh, What our society and even the modern church is trying to do is diminish their responsibility and yet think they're right with God. The more you mature, the more you become responsible for. You see this in your own children. The more they grow up, the more responsibilities you give them. So the New Testament has uh, 30% more commandments than the Old Testament. And the New Testament is more strict. Uh, One of the laws in the Old Testament is thou shalt not follow after wicked fellows to sin with them. 
All right, pretty good rule for today. The New Testament is even more strict. Abstain from anything that looks evil. If it just looks evil, abstain from it. That's a New Testament commandment. A lot more strict than don't follow after dirty people. So this one's going to kind of balance us out on the other side so we understand what the law cannot do for us while still referencing what it can. So let's look at our lesson. We have previously seen that the New Testament does not diminish the Old Testament or the law. And again, to remind you, the New Testament directly quotes the Old Testament 695 times, references it over 4,100 times, and there's only 8,000 verses in the New Testament. So half of the New Testament is referencing the Old Testament, just for your understanding. Instead, the New Testament reveals many aspects about the nature of the law and law in general. Paul is very clear about the law and its purpose. So let's read 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, 8 through 10. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. So this lesson is going to help us understand what it means to lawfully use the law. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but it is made for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, that's the Greek word for homosexuals, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Notice that the law is good for establishing what sound doctrine looks like. But the law has to be used lawfully. And I will also point out to you that everything we just read, Christians are capable of committing. They're capable of being dirty. They're capable of being disobedient. Any kids here ever been disobedient? Any employee here ever been disobedient? Sure. You need to have a law that tells you shame on you. Don't do that. Whoremongers, men stealers, perjured persons. Anybody ever been contrary to sound doctrine? Sure, that's when the law kicks in. The law is good if it is used lawfully. And that's what we have to focus on. How do we lawfully use the law of God? How do we lawfully use society's laws? How do you lawfully use the law in your classroom or your home? All the laws have to be used lawfully. One of the grand agendas of the end times global government is to pass so many laws nobody can keep them therefore everybody is guilty of infractions of the law now you can enforce a tyranny because the mindset of socialism the mindset of communism is who wants law-abiding citizens you can't control that and that's the end game for antichrist and antichrist governments so as we conceive in our own society they're passing so many laws it's going to catch everybody in a dragnet so everybody will be under the fear of infractions of law. That's an unlawful use of the law. Right now, you and I as Christians, we probably sin against a couple laws of the land because they're wicked laws. If they ever forced me to perform gay marriages, I would be guilty of violating the law. If they ever forced me to do anything contrary to the word, I'm not going to obey the government. I was ashamed. My pastor rebuked me one time in college. All right, this is when I was a youth leader. We were going witnessing at Walmart, and uh, we witnessed to the guy standing at the door first, and uh, he got mad. He was, a, he was a worker, a Walmart employee. He's in his 50s or so, and he said, if you've come here to evangelize or to tell people to solicit, you need to leave your trespassing, and we obeyed him, and my pastor chewed me out. He said, you obeyed a Walmart employee when it came to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Shame on you. Tell them I am going to evangelize and walk on past them and go find somebody else to tell about Jesus. Kind of got shamed that day. I was trying to be 
legalistic, trying to respect a 50-year-old man wearing a Walmart vest telling me I can't obey my Jesus. Well, as a matter of fact, sir, I might buy some toothpaste while I'm here too and tell somebody about Jesus while I'm at it. So they'll start making so many laws we can't do things. Our friends, Pastor Gary Brown in Ireland, uh, he was in Greece two years ago ministering to the refugees from Syria, and they had their vehicle loaded up as a soup kitchen, and I think it was 10,000 Christian tracks in Arab, Arabic. And they ran into some other Christian ministers there, and they said, you can't pass those tracks out. It's against the law here in Greece. And Pastor Gary said, I don't care. Well, they'll put you in prison. No, they won't. And he said, I distributed all of them. Didn't even care a bit. Greece, Greece where, where most of our New Testament was written from, it is now against the law to evangelize and proselytize and pass out gospel tracts. You'll go to prison for it. If you go to Greece, don't obey that law. Use wisdom, but don't obey it because you'll have to deny Jesus Christ to obey their laws. So we want to understand the balance of laws because we need them, but how to apply it lawfully. The law is good if it's used lawfully. The law was given with a purpose and intention based upon its inherent God-ordained ability. We must understand what that intention was and what the law's ability is if we are to use the law lawfully. Misusing or misapplying the law can produce legalism and death. And this is what everybody's afraid of. If we stick with the law, we're going to become legalistic. Well, you drive the speed limit, don't you? Is that legalistic? You don't go around murdering people at traffic lights when they get on your nerves. Is that legal? I mean, you know how many people I would have killed from whatever your county is, Greg? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, you're in Putnam County now, yeah. You've been delivered. The Lord has been merciful. After a long spell in a dry land, the Lord has delivered you to Putnam County. Overton. You know how many people I would have killed from Overton County if I was lawless? All of them. Because they all want to come down my road 20 miles an hour slower. I think they're trying to break a slow record. No, we, we, we keep these laws. And what keeps it from being legalistic is it's written upon the tables of our heart. We're not having to mind the jots and tittles of it. We get the gist of it. We get the heart of it. <laughs> so the spirit of the law, 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says, Who has Jesus has also made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit giveth life. Now we understand that. That's quoted all the time. But there's a vagueness here. He says, we've been made able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter. Now, the letter can be referencing the Old Testament, but the New Testament is also literally letters, and it's literally written with individual letters, and we've already proven it has 30% more laws. So whether he's referencing the Old Testament as the letter or the New Testament as the letter, he's talking about we're not ministers over letters, that is, the letter of the law, we understand what that even means by today's vernacular, the, the intense obsession over the fine print. He said, but we are able ministers of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit giveth life. Now here's the issue. The word Spirit there is our Greek word pneuma. The Hebrew equivalent is rewak. And it is also used biblically in the Old and New Testament to talk about the heart of something. The Spirit of the law. The Spirit of the Antichrist the gist of something. It's also translated mental disposition or attitude. So what I want to put forth that would maybe challenge your thinking, but it also fits very fittingly, is that I present to you that Paul is saying not only he's not just an able minister or not an able minister of the Old Testament when he fully is the one that quotes it so much, 
but he's not obsessed over the letters of the New Testament commandments or the letters of the laws, but the spirit or the heart of it. Because even with the New Testament, which obviously is surely recognized here, you can still become legalistic with the New Testament. Our Pentecostal brothers and sisters do with their big hair and buns and their long denim skirts because they have one verse out of context in Peter that talks about the plating of the hair and wearing of apparel. They still wear apparel. They wear like nine cubic yards of apparel. And yet they've become legalistic and the letter is driving them into a painful, crushing legalism. But what's the heart behind that? So this verse distinctly compares two things, letter and spirit. We must not forget that the New Testament has more commandments than the Old Testament. So the question here is not commandments or laws. The issue at hand in this verse cannot be the laws. I propose a new perspective, a perspective to this often quoted verse. Instead of interpreting the comparison here to that of the law versus the Holy Spirit, because again, we have 800 laws in the New Testament. I propose we look at it as the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. We're not able ministers of the letter, but we're able ministers of the spirit of the law. Every human being on the planet, even the Satanist, has rules for their children. And I've demonstrated to you when we taught on this a while back in Wednesday night services that you have to communicate the heart behind every commandment you give. And so we, I use the example of telling Lydia, teaching my six-year-old now, we don't push our little sister. Don't ever let me catch you pushing your sister. That's a naughty thing, and we're never going to let you push your sister. All right, and you, you, know, you discipline her so she knows I never push, I never push. And then you see her out in the backyard, and Abigail is wanting her big sister to push her on the swing. I can't push you on the swing. I can't push you. Mommy and Daddy said, if I ever push you again, I'm going to be spanked. That's getting hung up on the letter and not catching the heart of the commandment that was given, which is we don't push. So then you have to come back and you have to give another law that says, all right, for your understanding, sweetie, you never push your sister down, but you can push her on a swing or a merry-go-round or a sled. You can help push her on a bicycle. You can push her down the slip and slide. These are okay times to push. What we're trying to help her learn is the heart behind the law that says don't push. Thou shalt not push. So even some Christians get... Uh, they get legalistic with thou shalt not kill and they won't go to war and they won't defend their home. The Hebrew though is thou shalt not murder. I don't have a problem killing anybody that comes into my house unlawfully. And if I were called upon to go to war, I wouldn't have a problem pulling a trigger or dropping a bomb if I was called upon. If I was a police officer, some Christians can't become police officers because they might have to murder or, excuse me, shoot somebody, kill somebody. But that's not murder. That's law enforcement. Romans 13 says the police don't bear the sword in vain. They execute justice and judgment as they need to. And they're God's ministers to do so. So we're talking about finding the heart behind the law. So then we use the example again of Lydia. So she learns to push her sister on a swing. But one day we see that her sister is about to be hit by something and we yell at her push your sister push her down push her out of the way i can't you told me never to push her down you need to push her down right now to save her so this is okay this is an okay time to push your sister down all right we can see how the letter versus the heart can really get things messed up and you and i do the exact same thing with the laws of god because we don't study the full counsel of god's word to find his heart behind every commandment he gives. You know, turn the other cheek. That's one verse 
and everybody wants to use it against the Christian to make the Christian roll over and play possum. I had a friend of mine, uh, I did judo, jujitsu, and then I have a lot of guns, and then I did Japanese sword fighting. So a friend of mine, a geophysicist from Indiana, I was still staying in touch with, he started doing Japanese archery. And he said, there was a pastor up there doing Japanese archery. And, he, and this guy's a pagan, my geophysicist friend. He said, how come all you Christians are into weapons and guns? I thought you're supposed to turn the other cheek. I said, well, yes, I might turn the other cheek while the Lord teaches my fingers to make war. Because I'm going to find the whole heart behind God. And I have to provide safety for my own family. And so don't mess with me. They, don't start nothing. Won't be nothing. I can bear the sword. Jesus Christ went to a prayer meeting and he told his disciples, bring some swords with you. Not because we're going to fillet some steak on the grill, but because we're going to need them. So we got to find the full heart of God so that we don't get hung up on the letter of one verse or one passing commandment. All right? Amen. Okay. The letter of the law implies a hang-up on the details while failing to see the big picture. And we get that. Obsession over the letter will always lead to legalism, but knowing the heart behind any law will always free you up to fulfill it. Don't forget the big picture. Romans 13.10 says, here's the big picture. Love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What's the big picture? All 613 commandments of the law, the big picture is you do that so you don't work any ill will towards your neighbor or you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The 613 commandments of the Old Testament, which were extensions of the 10 commandments, which were broken down into four and six the first four commandments God gave were how you honor and love and serve God. And the six after that were how you treat your fellow man. And Jesus said, you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, and all this fulfills the law. It's pretty simple. The heart of it is love God and love mankind. There's nothing legalistic about that. That's what the hippies are striving for, just minus God and a lot of weed and a lot of lawlessness and and whatever, tattoos and piercings and weird stuff. We have to find the heart of God behind every commandment given. So love, the biblical God definition of love, that includes both mercy and justice. Love has justice involved. Justice includes the death sentence. Justice includes putting someone in prison for 25 years. So love is the big picture. Legalism is the exaltation and or strict adherence to laws while failing to discover and understand the heart of those laws. And we've taught you that over and over and again in these lessons. Anytime you see a New Testament verse giving you a commandment, you have to ask yourself, what is the heart behind this commandment? In order for Christians to avoid becoming legalistic, always ask that question. What's the heart and purpose behind this law? What is the spirit of this law? By spirit, we mean the attitude. What's the purpose? What's the attitude behind this? Why did the Lord say this? To that end, God explains the purpose behind two of his laws while delivering those laws. And we quoted this in lesson two, but it's worth looking at again because this is from uh, Deuteronomy. These sound like legalistic laws, but the Lord gives the purpose while he's delivering the law to Israel. He said, you are the children of the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall not cut yourselves like with a knife. A lot of teenagers, a lot of angst-riddled young folks cut themselves. It's mostly in young people. You don't rarely see it in adults. It's this next, is this younger generation. That's, it's cut up. We, when I was in Texas last weekend, we went out for breakfast, and I happened to notice this probably 18, 19-year-old girl sitting with these guys. And what drew my attention to her, she's dressed all in black. She has tattoos on her sleeves. She's kind of got some colorful things. And then her left arm, which lets me know she's right-handed, has these massive 
razor blade cuts, big scars, uh, probably two to three inches long, really fat ones in the middle. You, she wasn't just scratching this thing with a pocket knife. She did some serious damage, and she probably had 10 or 11 on this side, then she had rotated, and I could see several there. And so that, those, are, those were all old and healed, but you could tell the tattoos were fresh. So she traded cutting herself, driven by a demon of depression or suicide, for tattooing. Because it's the same demon. Now listen, if you have tattoos, no condemnation. I don't care. I used to be a cutter when I was in 7th and 8th grade. Uh, that was in the mid-80s. And uh, I was buffeted by devils. My left arm has cuts. I don't think that demon had perfected it in our culture yet because my arm doesn't look like any of these young people. But I do have lots of cuts right here from when I was suicidal as a 13-year-old. There's no condemnation for me. In fact, I did try to commit suicide as a 12-year-old. Go figure that out. I tried to overdose on medication. Painkillers. It's a demon. And then I wanted to get a tattoo when I was 18. And then I got my, right, my life right with Jesus Christ when I was 18. And I never had a desire ever again. If you have tattoos, I don't care. A lot of you do. I don't care. I've never dealt with you about your tattoos. But I want you to understand the demon behind it. That in times past, you yielded your members to demons to mock God. You did it in ignorance. But after this morning, you're no longer ignorant, so no more. We don't care. We don't look down at you over them. I don't care about them. It, is, it doesn't bother me. But the Lord said, don't cut yourselves. And he said, don't make any boldness between your eyes for the dead. What in the world is that about? Here's the reason. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. What's the heart behind these two laws? You are holy and you are mine, says the Lord, and you're peculiar. You do a little bit of historical research. The cutting is, of course, a demon form of worship. In Elijah's day, the prophets of Baal cut themselves with knives. The gathering demoniac in Christ's day cut himself with stones and, and pot shards. And then the, the shaving between, is actually right up through here, was something they did to worship the pagan idols. It was a hairstyle. It was demon worship. If you don't know this historical setting and the context behind it, you'll develop a perverse doctrine that says you should never have surgery because to have surgery, you have to be cut upon. Well, that's a totally different heart. It's to save your life. It's to improve your life. And if you, if you, <laughs> if you don't find the heart behind this, you'll end up looking like Frida, the, the famous Mexican artist who had a monobrow that made Bert and Ernie jealous. I mean, if the, needs, the, if the woolly worm needs waxing, please... Shave it, wax it, trim it, pluck it, string it like the Indians do. I don't care what you do. When people talk to you, they want to look at your eyes, not your eyebrow. <laughs> we have to find the heart behind this. The purpose or spirit behind these two legalistic laws is holiness in the midst of a pagan generation. So as stated previously in Lesson 2 when we quoted this verse, if a Christian fails to know the heart behind these Old Testament laws, they might develop a doctrine of no surgery and no eyebrow plucking. I mean, pluck your eyebrows if you want. Maybe some of you should start. Uh, maybe some of you, I think I made the joke about what, people pluck them all off and then draw them on. And I, I think I made the comment, what if you draw the wrong expression on that day? You know, you have a funeral to go to and you happen to slip and do the happy expression. And so it looks like you're happy that someone has passed away when you should draw the sad eyebrows. Or how about you just, just don't draw them on at all. And just, if you're a lady, not a guy, if you're a guy and you do this, 
You, you need to find another church. But if you need to darken your eyebrows with whatever you ladies do, you know, then do that. But let your face do the expressions for you and not uh, a little mar- magic marker. All right. Other characteristics of the law. To find the heart behind anything, you have to spend time with it. You have to get to know it. In science, when you're studying something, you just get around it, you experience it, you test it, you prove it, you, you experiment with it, and you get to know the essence of a, whatever your scientific field is. When you get to know a person, you experience them in all their settings, and you get to know them for who they are, and then you can become a character witness. If we're going to know the law so we can know how to use it lawfully, it's gonna, we're going to look at a couple bullet points that the New Testament tells us about the law so we can understand the nature of the law. All right? That's the purpose of this section here. So point one... Jesus is the law. That's a good way to start. He's the Word made flesh. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the beginning, what's he even referencing? The entire Old Testament. That's Jesus. Pretty good place to start. In Jesus' earthly ministry, he was a master of the law. Everything he quoted was the law, and he'd even point out to the Pharisees, have you forgotten how it says in the law that the high priest can violate the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? He was pointing that out to the Pharisees who were getting legalistic over Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. The law is fulfilled in the golden rule. Everybody knows the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Does anybody find the golden rule legalistic? No. But Jesus said in several places, the golden rule, what we call the golden rules, that term's not in the Bible, it's fulfilled. The law is fulfilled in the golden rule. The law and the prophets hang on two commandments. That would be Moses and everything else. They hang on two commandments, love thy God and love thy neighbor. So this helps us to understand the heart behind why God gave 613 commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. The law has weightier matters and the law has lesser matters. Think about that. Jesus rebuking the Pharisees said, you tithe on mint, cumin, and anise and neglect the weightier matters of the law. So tithing is a lesser matter. He goes on to list what the weightier matters are, justice, mercy, and judgment, righteousness. These are the weightier matters of the law. So the law does have lesser matters, and as Jesus Christ said, weightier or heavier or more important matters. So that lets us know that we have to be able to really discern the laws of God so we can know what's critical and what's lesser. Just like, let me use this for example. The Bible in the New Testament says we do all things decently and in order. Which me and we are to honor God. That's that's a critical thing. So we want to do that. We want to we want to honor the Lord. We want to be have our services decently and in order. But if somebody busts in here, smelling like alcohol, uh, a homeless person, and they come down and totally disrupt our services and fall at the altar and cry out for God, we're going to let decently and order go out the out the window in a heartbeat. Because decently and in order is important. But someone's salvation and someone's striving for God. That is a weightier matter. Just like the woman with the issue of blood, she violated Levitical law by coming into public and touching Jesus. She broke the law to grab a hold of it. And Jesus said, be of good cheer. Why why are you afraid? Your faith has made thee whole. She broke all the Levitical purification laws by being a woman with an issue of blood, bleeding constantly. She broke all those laws. She could have been stoned for it. She broke laws for the weightier matters. We have to understand this. Otherwise, we'll become legalistic. Well, well, they came in here and they interrupted pastor's sermon. That's just not proper. No, it's not proper. But who cares? They got born again. 
Well, they, they didn't dress nice. I don't care if they don't dress nice. They came to church. They smell like alcohol. Man, you smell like sin. You smell like attitude yourself. We don't kick you out. I can smell your sin. I can smell your lazy attitude. They just happen to smell like alcohol and B.O. And so did you before you gave your life to Jesus Christ. So yeah, I don't care how they come. Let them come and serve Jesus. So there are weightier matters and lesser matters. And you've got to know which is which. The law will not fall away or fail. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms speak of Jesus Christ. He that loves fulfills the law. The law had a shadow of good things that were to come. That is Jesus. Sin is the transgression of the law. These are things we're just, these are things the Bible tells us about the law. The law was given by Moses, which we know, but, but Paul said in Acts, angels were instrumental in giving the law. Think about that. The disposition of angels, the Bible says. Not Paul, it's Peter. The disposition of angels gave the law, given to Moses. Pretty, pretty powerful. Instruction in the law teaches what is more excellent. So think right there. The law teaches us what's excellent, and the law teaches us what sin is. Anytime the Lord says, thou shalt, even in the New Testament, that's a law. And you can't do that. Uh, the law is not made void. The law is holy. The law is spiritual. The law is good. The law is weak through the flesh. So that kind of gives us a, a good character portrait of the law. And, and by this, we refer to the Torah, 613 commandments of the Old Testament. So what the law can do, and it's kind of short. The law brings knowledge of sin and therefore helps, define, helps to define or helps define holiness. All right? You and I know that murder is wrong because the law says so. You and I know bestiality is wrong because the law says so. You and I know that we're to worship God with all of our heart because the Old Testament law tells us to. The Old Testament law begins to build this foundation of what holiness is and what God expects. It helps teach us what sin looks like and to hate it. And really, even the pagan teaches a lot of the Ten Commandments in their own home. Don't lie to mama. Don't steal. That's not yours. Don't go around slandering people. We don't fornicate. Fornication, that is having sex with someone you're not married to, is sinful. God cannot bless you. You end up cursing yourself. Um, and if you've got kids involved, they're illegitimate. Maybe you don't want to hear that, but if you have children out of wedlock, they are illegitimate children. It's not the children's fault. It's your fault. You can repent of that. You can make it right. My wife was born illegitimate to two drug addicts. They both got born again later in life, and one of them's in heaven, and one of them's serving God and can pray. I'm impressed with how my mother-in-law prays. So you can change things, but you've got to want to. Otherwise, if I tell you this as a preacher who loves you, and you don't make the adjustments, your life's going to get worse because you can't have knowledge of these things and violate them and be blessed. Amen. The law produces wrath and punishment. Romans is pretty clear on that. So these are things the law can do. That's a bummer. Why does the law produce wrath and punishment? Because it, it activates sin. And the law's do's and don'ts have also ramifications if you violate. If you don't the do and do the don't, you get wrath and punishment. The law causes offenses to abound and therefore also activates grace. Anytime we start saying don't, your flesh just flares up and says, watch this. And we, we joke about fasting. You just tell your flesh you're not going to eat for three days. And your flesh says, oh, yeah? Watch this. You just have to think about it. I don't even know how that works. Your mind thinks about it, and your flesh says, nope, we're going to go in there. We're going to gorge ourselves tonight. And we know each other. We know you're not even going to make the lunch tomorrow. 
So you're going to reset. I'm going to gorge us again tomorrow night. You're going to get fat trying to obey God. You have to live a disciplined life because the law activates your flesh. The law causes offenses to abound. Even as Paul said, I had not known lust except the law said, thou shalt not covet. Oh, so that's what that is. The law gives sin an occasion to flare up. The law produces a revival of sin. Paul said the law came, sin revived. We never talk much about sin revivals, <laughs> but that's what the law does. The law strengthens sin. The Bible says the strength of sin is the law, and yet the law points to Jesus Christ. And when you're born again, we'll probably cover this in, in our service this morning. When you're born again, the body of sin is crucified. The body of flesh is cut off, and it no longer has dominion over you like it did before you got born again. The law points to Jesus Christ, and you realize I need Jesus because the more I look at these laws, the more I fail them. Something's got to deliver me from this influence of the sin nature. And being born again causes that sin nature to be cut off from its influence upon your life as far as you have to commit it. Now that you're born again, you are separated from your sin nature. Your sin still wants to sin, but you have authority over it now. You didn't before you were born again, which is why you don't have to sin if you don't want to. You just, some of you still want to. Some of me still wants to. So, so that's what the law can do. And that's it. That's all the Bible says the law can do. It's not a real positive outlook. That's why we're supposed to look to Jesus Christ and deliverance through him. The law still stands as good and spiritual, but what the law can't do, and that's the whole next section, is it can't make you right with God. So let's look at that. Now, most importantly, not mostly, but most importantly, in order for us to be able to use the law lawfully, we must fully understand what the law cannot do. Now, I've saved this lesson towards the end because everybody right now in the whole hyper-grace message, everything's hyper-grace, hyper-grace, hyper-grace. You don't ever have to repent anymore. Y'all are lying. And they always get hung up on this one aspect. The law can't make you righteous. Well, nobody ever said it could. But the Bible also says we can't neglect the law and be lawless. Now I want to finally reflect on what the law cannot do because we don't want to misuse this thing. Hebrews seven nineteen says, For the law made nothing perfect. What can the law not do? It can't make you perfect. It can't make you right before God. But the bringing in of a better hope did. Well, if Jesus is a better hope, the law still had hope. But Jesus is the better hope. And by the which, or by the whom, we draw near unto God through Jesus Christ. So the law cannot make a man righteous before God. It never has and it never will. Now, we're still guilty of this. Every person in here still tries to use the works of the Bible to make yourself right before God. That's religion. And we'll cover that as we close out here in a few minutes. I'll give you a couple of examples that I see as pastor that we do. Romans 8 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, what could it not do? Couldn't make you righteous. God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So the law cannot make us free from sin and death. It binds us to sin and death. It strengthens sin. It propels us towards death. On the contrary, the law inflames this sin. Only faith in Jesus Christ can make you right with God. Hence, Romans 10.3, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Not for holiness. For righteousness. Holiness still is, thou shalt not steal. Holiness still is, thou shalt not worship pagan deity. 
Holiness still is thou shalt not commit fornication. Holiness still is thou shalt not have sex with an animal or lay with a man as you would a woman. That's still holiness. That's still the law. But righteousness is not in the law. Righteousness is in faith through Jesus Christ. And most of us, I think, understand that that's the crux of the Protestant Reformation. That's the crux of New Testament faith in Christ. And yet we are still all guilty of trying to use the works of the Bible, the works of the law, to make ourselves right with God. And we'll cover that. Let's march towards that real quick. When it comes to right standing with God, Jesus Christ is the end of the line. There is no other way to obtain righteousness but through faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 13, 39 says, And by him all that believe are justified from all things. That means there's not a sin you can't be redeemed from. Not murder, not homosexuality, not bestiality, not divorce, not adultery. There's not a single thing you've done, not pagan worship, satanic worship, not even abortion. There's nothing you've done that you cannot be justified from. That's what it says. By him, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses does not have the power to justify you or make you just as if you never sinned. Paul refers to the reliance on the law for righteousness as the works of the law. And let me, let me back up and say this, because maybe I'm assuming too much. When we talk about our relationship with God, righteousness is, in the Greek, the, the, the theological concept is that you are in perfect right standing with God. That's righteousness. You are right with God. He looks at you and he sees he has nothing against you. You are right. It's the state of being that, that is equal, I won't say equal, that is right with him, that is accepted by him, that is approved by him. Okay, that is righteousness, but that is totally different than holiness. Holiness is how you live. Holiness is your ability in your lifestyle to reflect your righteousness. Righteousness, when you're born again, is on the inside of you. It's a positional truth. It's who you are in Christ. But holiness is how you live that thing out. So everybody in here, if you're born again, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, but you all live at different degrees of holiness. So I want to make that clear distinction. The word justified or justification, that is a synonym for righteousness. When you have been justified, you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Justification and righteousness are synonyms in the book of Romans. In fact, Paul uses what's the mathematical transitive property. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. He uses it, you see him morph that over Romans chapter 4, 5, and 6, to where by the end he talks about justification as if it's the righteousness of God. So I want to clear the air on that. Just I'm probably assuming too much. Paul refers to the reliance on the law for righteousness as the works of the law. So when we talk about the works of the law or being into works, we're talking about you're trying to be in right standing with God by doing what the Bible commands. Now, here's the deal. You have to do what the Bible commands. But you don't do it with the attitude that says, this is going to make me right with God. You have to do what the Bible commands with the attitude, this pleases God. I'm already right with him because I'm born again, but this pleases God. And if I sin, I confess my sin. He washes me. He restores me back to my righteous position. And I continue on doing what I'm supposed to do anyway. Where we miss it as Christians is we try to do good works to compensate for the bad we already did. We try to balance it out. And that's that religious equilibrium. Well, my good works outweigh my bad. And every one of us in here has done it this week. I'll give you a couple examples. 
Romans 3.20, we're almost done here. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's it. By the law, you only have the knowledge of sin. You don't get justification from it. In Galatians 2.15 and 16, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Three times it talks about works of the law, and twice it says you can't be justified by doing good things. A lot of Americans, they want to do good works. They want to save pets. They want to hug a tree. They want to recycle. That's great and all. It's not going to get you right with God. They want to be vegans because, you know, cattle have feelings. So do plants. I was talking to somebody. He was, oh, a friend of mine. I just ran into an old friend of mine, and he has gone vegan or something. He said, I don't even, well, he used to be a big country boy hunter. Then he started getting a little hippy-dippy. And then he, he wouldn't even go squirrel hunting. And uh, then he quit hunting altogether because even for meat. And I just ran into him. He said, I don't even like fishing anymore. He said, because I got to kill it to eat it. And I said, um, Doug, his name's Parker. Parker, I said, in order for you to live, something has to die every day. How does that make you feel? I just wanted to ruin his little hippy dippy day. <laughs> in order for you to keep sucking air, man, something has to die. In order for you to have energy, something has to die. That's the facts of life. And God made us the top of the food chain. Eat all the cats you want to. Eat all the dogs you want to. Eat all the horse you want to. Eat the chinchilla if you want to. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Anything that's on that blanket. All manner of four-footed beast. Four-footed. That means kangaroos weren't there. They're only two. I guess they do walk around a little bit on their hands when they're little. All right, we got to keep going here because i got to finish this. Concerning righteousness, the only righteousness the law is capable of producing is self-righteousness. As follows, Philippians 3, 9. I want to be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. Your own righteousness is self-righteousness. Look at how good I am. I do all the law. I keep all the I'm the best little Christian, the best little spirit-filled helps minister. That's legalistic. But by that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, all you can do is believe it to get it. You can't work for it. Romans 10, 3, For they, the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness, are going about to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. That's the righteousness through faith alone. Reliance upon the law of, for righteousness will always fail. Matthew 5.20 says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Good works doesn't get you to heaven. I do good works. Hadn't killed anybody. Wanted to, but hadn't. Well, Jesus said, if you think about it, you're guilty of it. So now you've got to find a higher classification of righteousness than I'm just better at good than I am at bad. This pharisaical righteousness is a reference to the works of the law and the attempt to earn right standing with God. You cannot earn it. You can only ask God to have mercy, to believe on him, to confess your sin and say, Lord, please have mercy on me. Galatians 5.14, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. So we can fall from it, fail it. Many of you are very familiar with all these verses, but it's good to be reminded of it because we do still get into works. In fact, as I was writing some of these points we're about to look at, I thought of one or two of you. I thought, oh, maybe they'll be in Sunday school this morning and I can help them out of their religiousness. You can tell when someone's religious, they're bitter, they're fearful, they're insecure. 
Uh, they always got to talk about what they're doing for God. That's religion. Even James says, you, you say you have faith, I'll just show you mine. And he was confronting legalism. Because faith without works is dead. You don't have to talk about it, just do it. To insist on justification through works drives the grace of God out of your course of life. Now the word there, fall from grace, fall, it, one of the terms in the Greek, that the definition is to drive something out of your path. So that's why I added that there. When we insist on good works to be right with God, we drive the grace of God out of our, we say, get out of my way. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. So modern day works. New Testament Christians continue to try their, to find their own righteousness through New Testament works. Though we are commanded numerous times to maintain good works, this is in reference to Christian service for God, not right standing with God. All right? We are commanded, I think it's 27 times to maintain good works or do good works or labors of love. 26, 27 times. Last time I, ch- I looked it up. But we do that because we are born again. We don't do that to be born again. We do that because we are right with God. We don't do that to get right with God. We do it for Him. We don't do it to earn Him. And yet we still have to do the works. And we can easily, with the wrong heart, turn all those works into dead works. And Hebrews 6 says that we repent from dead works. Dead works can be good works with the wrong motive. So what are some examples that I see? Sometimes we'll pray longer to appear spiritual. That can be religious. Nothing wrong with praying longer. But to appear spiritual, that's religious. Giving outwardly to appear generous, sacrificial, or pious. I'm, I'm unfortunate, I have to tell you, I'm, I, I have some preacher friends who have to make a big show every time we do an offering. That's religious. I was in a meeting. Oh, I've told this story. I just wanted to stand up and rebuke them, but I was a little guy on the totem pole. We were trying to receive an offering and make a budget, and he auctioned the thing off, which I always think is heresy. I can't stand that. Because then everybody's got to stand up and have a show, and it's exactly what Jesus Christ forbid in the temple. So it's one of the verses where it says, don't let your left hand know what your right is giving. Because the Lord who sees in private will reward you openly. Will you stand up and say, I'll give a thousand? Yeah, you have your reward. So this guy was receiving the offering, and he said, so he's doing the number of the budget in his head as people are kind of saying, we'll give 500, we'll give 800, we'll give. So he's doing the math in his head. That gets us down to 1,000. Anybody else, are we going to? He said, well, then I'll, I'll give that last 1,000. He pulls his checkbook out, and he says, how do you spell 1,000? And I wanted to say, thou sin. That's how you spell it, ding dong, thou sin. And I t- we had our check already. I said, I'm not raising my hand for nothing. Nobody's going to know what I gave because this is religion. This is pride. This is insecurity, and I'll have no part in it. This makes me want to puke. And these are friends of mine. Blah. Advertising your leadings of God. <laughs> We're horrible about that as these crazy, matic word of fakers. You know, the Lord was talking to me. Then how come your life isn't better? And the Lord was speaking to me the other day, Pastor. Then why, why am I having to talk to you if the Lord's talking to you so much? We do that to appear close to God. You're not close to God. You're so insecure. You're a million miles away. Working extra hard in the ministry after you've sinned to, quote, atone for your failings. 
I remember one time in college when I was in the ministry of helps here, I went and did something stupid, and I was so nervous that Pastor Vaughn would find out about it by the word of knowledge. I had to open that night. I came in here extra early. I did everything extra special. Opened everything, hit the breakers, extra special for Jesus, extra special, extra special. I, we had glasses of water back then. I got everything extra clean and extra nice and extra, everybody equal ice cubes. It was so perfect. Why didn't I do that any other time? Because my sin was screaming at me, and I knew no other way but works to try to wash it away. And I was actually standing, well, the hallway used to be there. It was different in those days. I remember coming through there and instantly realizing I have just committed works to try to repent. And I was just even a more failed man, kid. I was probably 21. Reading your Bible more after you've sinned to try to make up for what you did. Why don't you read your Bible? Why do you have to sin to start reading your Bible? These are, all, these are all works to try to be right with God. These are all good and necessary works, but don't allow the motive to be perverted. The law and its works can never make you any more righteous with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Notice you are made. Yeah, the Greek word made means to, to come down and exist when you didn't exist before. You are made the righteousness of God. You're not earning it. You were made it by believing on Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is, there's a lot to cover. I mean, whole hundreds of years of time has been spent on talking about what the law can and cannot do. But hopefully this gives you more insight. We're covering spiritual jurisprudence or spiritual law. We have to cover this aspect of it if we're going to be well balanced in our teaching on law. So there you have it. Father, we thank you for this lesson. Thank you for Sunday school. We thank you for all those that will listen to these lessons in the future on our pod school website. Bless folks. May they have a right walk with you. May we rest in the work of Jesus Christ and then do good works for you, having been born again through faith alone. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.